Do you remember being 20 years old? What were you doing? When Eric Hodges was 20, he was a Marine stationed in Oslo. I was uh, working at the American Embassy in Oslo, Norway. And my job was, I was the detachment commander at that time. That meant at age 20, he was in charge of the Marines who did the security for the U.S. Embassy in Norway. So that meant on a weekly basis, I would have meetings with the U.S. ambassador, you know, the political officer of the embassy. And keep in mind, I'm 20 years old when I'm doing this, right? So I, you know, there are all these important geopolitical things that are happening, and I'm sitting in on these conversations, and I have an inflated view of who I am at that particular point. It was a lot of responsibility, and so different from the life Eric found after he left the Marines. I get out of the Marine Corps, and I'm sitting in a 200-person lecture hall with, you know, other uh, first-year students who are there uh, in their pajamas, doing crossword puzzles in class while the professor is speaking. And it was just kind of a, kind of a shocking experience to go from, from one of those extremes to the other. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, what comes after military service? Now, Eric Hodges is a political science professor at Longwood University. He's researching what it was like for African-American veterans in his community who both served and then came home. Eric, how did you first get interested in learning more about the experiences of Black veterans? You were in the Marines. You are a Marine. Uh, Thanks, Sarah. That's a great question. Uh, I I served in the Marine Corps. I enlisted uh, after high school. And when I was in graduate school was when sort of the wars in Iraq were drawing down. Uh, So there were a lot of veterans that were coming back into American society. A lot of them were having issues making the transition. I had a somewhat difficult transition myself. And I saw a lot of these veterans coming back. And in addition to some of the things that I faced, these folks were dealing with trauma, the trauma of being in war. Uh, This is when veteran suicide numbers were up at, I think, 22 per day. Uh, So I was, you know, I, as a veteran, wanted to help these veterans, remembering my own experience. And um, so I thought I would do my doctoral research on veteran transitions, how how to help veterans make better transitions into society to, to try to deal with some of these social issues that we have. Remind me what the transitions are. I get that it's disorienting. Yeah. So when you're in the military, the two things that are really important are sort of the unit camaraderie like the closeness of the people that you're working with, and also having a very strong sense of purpose. And when you make the transition out of the military, you lose both of those things. You don't, you don't have that sense of purpose anymore, That you, even though you may still have a purpose. I got out and I went to college, so my purpose was to graduate, but it was not the same urgency that I, that I had when I was in the military. Can you give me one moment of how it could still be hard for you, even though you had the purpose of graduate school and schooling. Yeah. Um, so, so when I got out of the Marine Corps, I was uh, working at the American Embassy in Oslo, Norway, and my job was I was the detachment commander at that time. So I was l- overseeing the the detachment of Marines that were char- in charge of security at the embassy in Norway. So that meant on a weekly basis, I would have meetings with the U.S. ambassador. Uh, with the director, or the CIA station chief, you know, the political officer of the embassy. And keep in mind, I'm 20 years old when I'm doing this, right? So I, you know, there are all these important geopolitical things that are happening, and I'm sitting in on these conversations, and I have a, a, an inflated view of who I am at that particular point. And then I get out of the Marine Corps, and I'm sitting in a 200-person lecture hall with, you know, other uh, first-year students uh, who are, you know, who are there uh, in their pajamas. And, you know, doing crossword puzzles in class while the professor is speaking. And it was just kind of a kind of a shocking experience to go from from one of those extremes to the other. It is shocking. Yeah. So that that definitely took some took some time for me to make that transition. And then also it's the the camaraderie. I mean, I was part of a group of eight Marines uh, in Oslo and we, we worked very closely together. We lived together. And when I was a college student, I didn't didn't really have those close relationships that I had had when I was in the military. And it took me a long time to sort of uh, build that close group of friends that I had when I was in the Marine Corps. You are a white Marine yes. and had mostly, I assume, experiences with fellow white soldiers. That's right. 
Um, so I, you know, I grew up, this kind of going back into my background, I grew up in a small uh, rural town in Virginia. I grew up in, in Henry County, Virginia. And, um, you know, I mostly associated with white individuals. I had white friends. And, you know, when I was growing up, it was a somewhat racist environment at that time. In the Marine Corps, they force you to be exposed to all different kinds of perspectives and different kinds of people. So one of the best things that happened to me while I was in the Marine Corps was um, I became best friends in one of my one of my duty stations with uh, with a black Marine. And that completely opened my eyes to, you know, how racist in some ways the environment that I grew up in was and how uh, mistaken a lot of my uh, perceptions were at that time. There's also another experience you had, and this was going to see a Spike Lee film about black veterans. Tell me about that and why it had such an effect on you. Yeah. So, you know, I started off doing my research with just veterans in general. And then uh, I had the experience of getting a job at Longwood University, uh, which is in Prince Edward County, Virginia. And even though I grew up in Virginia, I wasn't super familiar with the story of Prince Edward County and what happened during the civil rights movement there. It became one of the major cases in the Brown versus Board of Education case that that integrated uh, public education in the United States. But the story goes on. Even after the Supreme Court ruled separate is not equal, right, and, and they ordered that schools be integrated, uh, Prince Edward County chose rather than to integrate the schools, they chose to shut down all public schools in Prince Edward County for five years. But of course, it was it had different effects for the white students as opposed to the black students. There was a private foundation that was created to ensure that uh, the white students could get access to education in, in private schools. There was a private school created in Prince Edward County, Prince Edward Academy, uh, and a lot of the the black students were were left without access to good education. How did that relate to you thinking of these students and the work you were doing on the experiences of U.S. black veterans? coming home. So the way that it related was that a lot of these students who did not have access to public education ended up being drafted into Vietnam. How did this experience of being denied your civil rights, being denied access to public education, how did that affect uh, certain aspects of their military service in Vietnam? Did you talk to a lot of these people? I did. I talked to around, I think, around 50 veterans, 50 black veterans uh, in the area about about the, those experiences and how sort of being denied their civil rights in this particular case affected their, their military service. What did you learn from them? I learned a lot. <laughs> I learned probably more than, than we have time to talk about. But I focused on three particular aspects. The first aspect that we were looking at was patriotism, Right. If you've been denied your civil rights, if you've been denied access to public education, would you feel patriotic to serve that country that had denied you those basic basic civil rights? So that was one of my questions. My second question was, did they experience racism in the military similar to what they had experienced in Prince Edward County with the, with the schools being shut down? And then the final thing that I was interested in was, what was it like to come home? What was it like to come home to that community? Because homecoming is notoriously difficult for veterans. So you put the racial injustices in Prince Edward County on top of the the moral um, outrage that a lot of Vietnam veterans faced. How did that affect their homecoming experiences? Did you learn it was worse for African-American veterans typically than it was for just all veterans? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's I don't know if I w- it's hard for for all veterans. Right. Or, you know, I mean, I don't want to say all, but the majority of veterans, it's, it's a challenge coming home for, for multiple reasons. But, yeah, I mean, they did face racism when they came home. Like one of the questions that I had asked about racism, racism in the military, they all said that racism was worse in Prince Edward County than it was in the military. Um, and they told stories about coming home in their uniforms and being denied access to restaurants uh, trying to participate in protests in their uniforms and being asked not to protest uh, for that reason. Interestingly, a lot of the veterans uh, that I spoke to chose not to come back to Prince Edward County as their home. Right? They moved to other states, for example, to try to sort of get away from some of the some of the racism that they had experienced. I'm so interested in this first category that you are exploring. This idea of what sort of patriotism did you feel or not feel? Patriotism is so complex now. Right. You know, when we were growing up, it was just, Pledge you know, of allegiance. And, yeah. Yeah. yeah right. Stand up for the national anthem, that sort of thing. 
Right. But it totally makes sense it was much more complex. So when you first posed the question to people, they said... Well, you know, I, I, going in with an assumption, which is probably not a good idea, I had assumed that they would not feel patriotic. That's interesting that you assumed that. I assumed that, right? And this, it goes back to a question you had asked me earlier about the Spike Lee movie, The Five Bloods, right? And that, that's kind of what led me to, to this assumption that they would not feel patriotic. Spike Lee's movie, The Five Bloods, is about five African-American Vietnam veterans who, who 40 years later go back to Vietnam to try to process their experiences. And in particular, they're going back, they had a squad leader who died in Vietnam. And they're going back to try to find his body so they can bring it home because his body was left in Vietnam. And the movie, you know, it, it moves back and forth between present day and flashing back to actually Vietnam. And you see a lot of the civil rights injustices that had happened during the time. It opens up with, you know, uh, news clips of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King's assassination. That, that plays a big part in the, in the movie. But you really see sort of the double standard that was applied to a lot of these veterans. And, and you know, I mean, I think Spike Lee is raising that. He's raising the question. It was the question that was that movie was sort of one of the central points that that drove me to to try to answer this particular question of patriotism. So you saw the movie yes. and assumed that the men you were now interviewing would say, yeah, like the guys in the movie, I don't feel very patriotic. Right. Exactly. Uh, but that wasn't exactly what happened. Uh, because a lot of these folks, uh, they started off saying, yes, I'm not patriotic. But as the conversations and the focus groups would go on, they would kind of end up in a place where they, they were displaying a type of patriotism and loyalty to country and you know, service to each other and service to sort of uh, American values. I was curious about why was that the case? You know, why would you feel patriotic uh, when you have not been treated particularly well at home by your country? And a lot of them uh, invoked the golden rule, right? So religion played a major part in the experiences of a lot of these, these veterans that I spoke to. And they did not want to let the way that they had been treated at home define them in the way that they actually acted, right? So they thought, you know, rather than I've been treated this way, I'm going to act this way, it was do unto others as you would have them do unto you, right? So act the way that you think you should behave rather than the way that you've actually been treated. So they thought that they would use their military service as an example of the way that they thought you know, an American citizen should behave. Were they proud of their military service? They were very proud of their military service. Uh, they, they almost all had uh, very positive things to say about the military. Each focus group we had, they would talk for three hours. Oftentimes, the staff in the, uh, in the museum would have to say, it's time for you guys to go home because they had so many stories to tell about their military experiences and, and the things that they had accomplished. What had they loved about the military? I think they loved the camaraderie. You know, that's one of the major things that, that you often hear from veterans, right? It's a type of brotherhood. It's a type of community. And that also plays into sort of the racism question as well, right? I, I don't think racism played as big a part in their military service because they saw themselves as part of, the, of a community and a brotherhood in a lot of ways that sort of transcended um, you know, the racism that they experienced at home. So certainly the camaraderie. Um, I mean, I think that they enjoyed their experiences of traveling to different places. I mean, certainly there were aspects of, the, of their military experience they didn't enjoy if they were, you know, serving in Vietnam, for example. But seeing new places, uh, meeting new, new people, um, and also, yeah, just I think they really enjoyed having that, that sense of purpose, that sense of leadership that they experienced in the military. Where are you going from here in your work? Well, my goal is to write a book. You know, we had we had twelve focus groups, and each one was was three plus hours, and we covered we covered so much ground um, that I feel like you know a lot of uh, a lot of Americans should hear these stories. I think there were such powerful stories that were told in this particular time, and because the voices of of Black Vietnam veterans and Black veterans in general really have not been a major part of the discourse in America surrounding veterans and, and just American history in general. I think these are stories that people need to hear. I, one of the most powerful quotes or, or anecdotes that I heard during the conversation was, was in one of the focus groups on homecoming, right? And we, you know, I, I, we asked the question, you know, uh, do you feel like you had a good homecoming? And uh, they, none of them felt like they had been welcomed home. 
Uh, they, a lot of them felt like the home the homecoming process was still ongoing. And one of the veterans said, a true homecoming would look like nothing we've ever seen before. <gasps> and I'm not sure that I still know exactly what he meant by that. Yeah. But I want to explore that. You know, I want I want to hear more about what he actually meant by that. And um, I want to share that. You know, I want to share that story with a wider audience. Eric Hodges, thank you for sharing your insights with me on With Good Reason. Thank you, Sarah. It was a pleasure. Eric Hodges is a professor of political science at Longwood University. Alicia DeFonso's grandfather was a big part of her life as a kid. He was charming and jovial and the absolute best storyteller. But his stories always left out the years he spent fighting in World War II. So after a spontaneous visit to the beaches of Normandy, France, Alicia finally asked her grandfather to tell her those stories. Their conversations gave life to her new book, The Time Left Between Us. Alicia DeFonso is a lecturer at Old Dominion University. Alicia, tell me about your grandfather as you knew him. He was a strong, crusty, amazing guy. Yeah, he was. <laughs> I don't know. What can I say about my grandfather? I mean, since I was a little girl, he was just the Frank Sinatra character in the room, tall and charming and handsome. And so I just found myself over the years, just every Sunday family Italian dinners, you know, listening to his stories and admiring him. And then we became even closer when I began to research this book, uh, closer than we ever were. You say he was an incredible storyteller, but he never told stories about his experiences fighting in World War II. You didn't even know he had five bronze stars. Yeah, I didn't know much. That's how this story begins. Really didn't know much about the war. I went to Paris and just happened to take a side trip to the Normandy beaches. I came back and I asked my grandfather, who had moved to the eastern shore of Virginia, I said, hey, you know, would you mind telling me these stories? Because you've never really talked about it. And when I asked him, I didn't know why he had never told the stories. I did not have the awareness of what war does to someone. I didn't look at war as something personal. I looked at it as historical or academic. When I sat down with him, it was basically a huge request to say, please tell me your stories from the war so I can capture it for our family. And he finally said, sure. And when I asked him, why did you not tell anyone all these years? He said, because no one ever asked or gave a blank. You actually called him from France, from Normandy, on the beaches. How did he respond to that phone call? <laughs> yes, I actually called him. I said, hey, Grandpa, you know, I'm at Utah Beach. And he was like, yeah, I was there. So casual, nonchalant. And it was then just hearing his voice that I knew that his survival on that beach was nothing short of a miracle. And it kind of overpowered me. And I realized at that beach that I just knew nothing. I just knew nothing about the war, nothing about really what it all meant, what he had experienced, and that really his survival is my own. Recount a couple of stories of where he fought and stories that have stayed with you that you wrote about. Well, yeah, <laughs> there's quite a bit. Um, there's a moment in his life during the war where he starts to transform. You know, he goes from being this green private first class, but as he starts to transform and sees more and more war, you know, that, that entire shine of war, that glow that he was talking about when he was young and gung ho, that wore off pretty quickly. And so he started to be more and more desensitized. And this is a time in the book where I call him the Turk. His nickname was the Turk. Obviously, they hadn't showered in months. He was growing out a long beard. He had, you know, a long knife by his side, you know, that he would throw and also his, his guns on him. And so he just kind of became this strange, grizzled out war character 
far from, you know, the, the cleaner, like high school kid signing up for war that those days were gone. And so there's a moment of him as the Turk, a couple moments as the Turk where he just seems to be more cold, get this job done and get home, whatever the cost. And there's a scene where he describes, you know, that the Germans, when they were in France, they were, you know, trying to take France back, that they would wire up occupied homes, you know, from time to time. And my grandfather would go in those homes and he would find the portrait of Hitler on the wall that was like required to have. And he would turn it, kind of tilt it sideways a little bit. And he would wire up the entire house so that if anybody put that portrait straight, he are, he knew, at least to him, again, this is him, um, he knew that they were Nazis, like through and through. It's kind of this strange moment and seeing him go from like this beloved grandfather <laughs> to to that. But it was really important too, I think, to note that because that is war. It's real. It happened um, people become a different form of themselves, different version that maybe they never thought they would be. As my grandfather and Kurt Vonnegut said, right, there are no heroes in war. So I wanted to make sure I did not portray him as like this idyllic war hero. Instead, show him with his flaws and show how dark it can truly get. You know, in your book, you make some comparisons between your grandfather's experiences and those of your brother who fought in Iraq decades later. Would you read the passage from the book where you talk about them? Sure. My youngest brother, James, is a Marine, and he fought in Ramadi, Iraq. And so when both of them were talking about letters at different time periods, of course, I thought, that's strange that they feel that nobody ever wrote them. So this chapter kind of explores what that must be like for soldiers and what that does to them when we don't. So the letters. You know, your grandmother only wrote me once during the war, he says, sipping his scotch, staring out at the Chesapeake Bay, which he can no longer see. I look at him with her eyes. It was the first I had heard of it. He wouldn't lie to me, but I wonder how could this be true? Really? Only once? It was the only letter I got from her the whole war. Rose sent her photo and told me how upset she was they were sending Dominic, her brother, overseas. Grandpop had been gone for more than two years, sending her dozens of letters, French perfumes, and money to buy food and extras. One reply. He stares back at the restless water, folding his hands. I know he wants to say something. His eyes are watery. One letter so upset him 65 years later. I couldn't believe her. Worse yet... I was mad at myself for having done the same to my youngest brother, James, after he deployed to Iraq. In 2006, Time called Ramadi, quote, the most dangerous place in Iraq, where more Marines had died than any other territory. James spent all of his money, positive he would never return. Mom was sure James would never return either. Once James deployed, the thought of my brother dying became real. I wrote three, maybe four letters. Couldn't stomach the whole last words concept. Everything's the same here. Dad's still crazy. Be safe. Hooch never wrote, though. That's how he deals with things. Total denial. The two of us wore James's dog tags around our necks while the family sent him care packages. We cursed anyone, anywhere, who talked bad about our brother or made light of the war. If he died, Hooch and I vowed never to speak to our father again. It was seven months of waiting for that phone call, which extended to ten. James returned with burn scars, a concussion from a truck bomb, torn shoulder ligaments from months of carrying 80-pound gear, which the VA later refused to cover for medical treatment, and PTSD, but alive. He looked 10 years older. Weeks later, Hooch and I threw him a homecoming party with some of our friends at the community clubhouse. After a few drinks, James's demeanor shifted. His dark blue eyes reflected a lost boy. I knew his mind was not right. In front of everyone, he suddenly dragged Hooch by the neck into the bathroom. Not one letter... The entire time, brother, you piece of blank, he threw Hooch against the wall. The movement was effortless. I swiftly told those remaining to leave. Gripping his brother by the throat with his left hand, James punched a hole 
in the wall the size of a basketball. Not one letter. I could be dead. Brother apologized to brother, but it was too late. James's wrist dripped with red while the other arm closed its grasp. He leaned in close and whispered, I should snap your neck. At those words, I thrust my body between them, begging James to stop. In a second, he shoved me to the floor with his buddy palm, never taking the other off of Hooch. Do you hear me? I have no brother. He squeezed harder and Hooch's eyes rolled. Then James let go. He stormed out of the clubhouse, hurling objects in his path while Hooch fell to his knees. And we cried. James has not forgotten the letter since. Neither has my grandfather. It's such a powerful reminder of what war does to men, right? Sure. I mean, what war does to anybody that's fighting for their life in survivalist mode. Your grandfather passed away while you were writing the book. What does it mean to have the book to remember him by in those last few years of your conversations with him together? One thing that I realized when I finished the book was the answer to my question from the beginning. Why was I asking in the first place? Like, would would going on this journey with him really make him feel better or me? Why was I even doing it? And, right. and I realized after he passed away, what I had been fighting for my fight all along was to keep him alive because he was 84 when we started this project and he passed away when he was 93. It keeps him alive on the page. You know, he's still telling his stories on the page and I can only hope to tell stories like he did and kind of keep that energy, keep his charm. And I, I, I don't know, hopefully in a way, redeem him, redeem myself as the greatest takeaway from writing this. Alicia DeFonso is a lecturer at Old Dominion University and the author of The Time Left Between Us. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. After the Civil War, veterans and their families could apply for pensions, but they had to prove they were eligible, which was especially tricky for the families of soldiers who died during the conflict. Sharon Roger Hepburn is a history professor at Radford University. Her book, Private No More, compiles almost 60 letters written by a black soldier who had died during the war. His name was John Lovejoy Murray. His letters were submitted to the government by his family as proof for a pension, and they've been stored in those government files ever since the Civil War. Sharon, your new book collects the letters of John Lovejoy Murray. Who was he? John Lovejoy Murray was... Um, a free-born northern man. He was born between Buffalo and Rochester, New York. So we don't have his official birth date or any birth records. But between census records and some other pieces of evidence, uh, we're pretty sure that he was born between 1829 and 1831. How did he come to join the Union Army? So he was in um, Lockport, New York, when the war first started in 1860. We're not quite sure why, but he left New York and he traveled to Detroit and he enlists in what was then the first Michigan colored infantry regiment. It later becomes, it's redesignated the 102nd United States colored troops. So they're a mix of Northern and Southern men freeborn and enslaved people. Some of them ran away 
years or decades before the war. Some of them ran away during the war. Some of them ran away literally just to join the Union Army. So it's a, it's a wide mix. The reason you focused on John Lovejoy Murray is that you came across the letters he wrote to his mother during the war in his pension file after she applied for a pension because he had done this duty and died in the service of his country. Tell me what you found and what these letters meant to you as you began to decipher them. So this is what makes this collection unique. It's not just a, a letter here or two. It's, it's a whole collection. And it's a, letter, it's a collection of letters that for over 150 years sat in a pension file in the National Archives. It was almost like John Murray just sort of reaching out and saying, this is my experience. This is how I lived as a soldier. This is me writing to my mom about eating old flour with worms in it. And uh, we're, we're going hungry and we don't have any um, blankets or tents and we don't have any shoes. And tell me about some of the other things he wrote to her about. And maybe if you would share excerpts from these letters, I'd love to hear. Sure. It talks about a number of things, but but finances and pay does happen to be one of his big issues. So there's a substantial difference between what black soldiers were being paid and what white soldiers were being paid. And Murray talks about this, for example, when the the regiment was going to be paid off for the first time. He writes to his mother in May of 1864. And part of his letter says, last Friday, the paymaster came to pay us off. Part of the regiment took $7 a month, but I would give my time to Uncle Sam before I would sign the payroll. So he basically refuses pay. And this is something that Civil War historians have known and have studied for an extensive period of, of time. We knew and we know this. And we know that regiments like the 54th Massachusetts refuse their pay for well over a year. These are men who are not wealthy. These are men who joined the military. John probably joined the military in large part for a job, for the pay. But he's refusing to accept this pay because he, he knows that it's unequal. And he knows that as a sign of citizenship and manhood, they should be paid an equal amount of money. And so he refuses that. In another letter, he says, give us our $16, then we will fight like a man, but not for less. You also include in your book letters where he is exploring the relationship between white and black soldiers in the Union Army. And you say he goes back and forth on his feelings about the white officers, sometimes feeling there's not much discrimination in the military, other than, of course, this huge amount of pay discrepancy. Right. He, he does go back and forth. There's, there's times when he talks about his white officers and all African-American regiments had white officers. So they were, they were segregated regiments. They were all black regiments and they were officered by white men. And John, uh, John Murray has, I don't want to say love hate relationship with his officers, but he does at times say that one of his officers, um, Henry Barnes, the man who helped to rage the regiment. At one point he said that, you know, he was, he was the best of man. And then a couple of weeks later, he writes, when he hears that he's in jail, incorrectly, um, he writes, well, it's a good thing. I hope they keep him there. And when he hears that one of his captains is sick and not likely to live, Murray writes home to his mom and says, no great loss. But then there's times when he talks about his officers and he says that they, they were the best, that they would protect um, the colored soldiers um, to, to, as best they could. And when he talks about what we would say discrimination or equality between white and black soldiers, the typical assumption, and probably rightly so, but the typical assumption is that African-American soldiers received worse of everything. 
So less medical care and less professional uh, surgeons and worse equipment and uh, less and worse food and, and things of that nature. And from Murray's perspective, and again, this is just one man, right? So out of 200,000 soldiers, this is just one person's experience. He does not really talk, except for the pay, he doesn't talk about discrimination. And at points he says, in, in one of his letters here, he says, we get everything the white man get, so we can't complain. He says um, in another letter about the soldiers who are around him, white soldiers who are around him, he says, we are mixed up with the white soldier. We don't even hear the word, and here he uses the N-word. We don't even hear the N-word. I heard more in one day at the North than I heard in five weeks in the South. We eat and sleep together. We are camp alongside of them. I have seen 150,000 soldier and a better set of boys I ever saw. They don't get tainted till they get North. And that's very surprising that he talks more about the equality between white soldiers and black soldiers and really does believe that they're getting the same the, the same things that white soldiers that are camped, you know, over down down the road a little bit or in the next pasture or wherever they were, that they were getting the same kinds of materials. So these letters were in his pension file for his mother to prove that he was her son and she should get his pension. Was it hard for African-American soldiers or their families to get a pension after the war? The, the pension, the government pension, it was colorblind officially. In other words, African-American soldiers had an equal opportunity to claim pensions. But their circumstances make it much more difficult for African-American soldiers than white soldiers to get a pension. So African-American soldiers had difficulty proving their age or their birth dates or who their parents were. Most of these Civil War Black soldiers had been slaves. They couldn't prove their marriages because slave marriages before the Civil War were not legal. So they couldn't prove a legal marriage. Widows couldn't prove the death of a, of a prior husband if their husband had been sold away from them as a slave and never seen again. And then that woman remarried later to a Civil War soldier. And when he died, she tries to get his pension well, she has to fight for it because she has to prove somehow that her first husband was dead. Did his mother end up prevailing? Did she get a pension? Yes. Sarah, because of these letters, Sarah proved that she was John Lovejoy Murray's mother and she receives an $8 pension a month for the rest of her life. How did he die? He, he died from a fever on April 12th of 1865 which means he died three days after Lee surrendered at Appomattox and three days before Lincoln was assassinated. He was in a Charleston hospital when he died. There seems to be at least one or two letters that he wrote. He informed his mother that he was in the hospital. Um, but then his letters stopped and she kept writing him letters because she didn't know that he was dead. And we have four or five letters that came to him after he had died. And they were sent back to her with a note saying, Re returned upon death. Mm. What did she write to him? She, she writes really heart-wrenching uh, letters because she's trying to find her, her son. She says in March of 1863, uh, my dear son, I wish to hear from you once more this side of the grave. Write and let me know where you are. I have not had any letters for four weeks or more. I don't know whether you're sick or in the hospital or taken prisoner or not. I want to hear from you so bad. Do write soon. 
in another letter, just a, a week after the one I just read, she writes, if I never should see you in this world, that I might be so happy as to meet you in heaven where the parting hand can never come. This great union, the greater victory that has been achieved, that Richmond is fallen, I hope to rise no more. But many a mother heart ache for her husband or son in this cruel war. But keep good courage. No nation can be free without shedding blood. So if this be true, the colored soldiers will have a name in history. And at the time she writes this, her son is already dead. What was it like afterward for the Black Union soldiers who actually survived the war, would you say? It, it is difficult for them. Um, for the 102nd, many of them go back to their home in Michigan and um, many of them specifically to Cass County. But they, they, they lead difficult lives. They are poverty-stricken. Um, many of them suffer for decades with long-term um, illnesses that they contracted during the war, a lot of rheumatism. They have lung disease. They have kidney disease. They're broken down men, as were most Civil War soldiers after fighting that war. And they suffer. And the pensions that they receive or try to receive, that's why it's so important to them to be able to get those pensions because starting off at $8 a month may not seem like a lot to us, but it certainly was in the 1870s, 1890s. Um, and it often is the, the difference between being sent to the, the poor house and being able to try to feed a family. Sharon Roger Hepburn is a history professor at Radford University and the author of Private No More, The Civil War Letters of John Lovejoy Murray, 102nd United States Colored Infantry. Nowadays, community colleges can offer an especially welcoming landing spot for veterans who are transitioning to civilian life. My next guest is director of the Center for Military and Veterans Education at Tidewater Community College. Steve Borden shares some of what the veterans he works with are going through and the services in place to help them. Steve, you're next to the largest naval base in the world. I bet veteran services are a really big, big deal where you are. Absolutely. Um, I'm at Tidewater Community College in the Norfolk, Virginia Beach area, and a third of our students are military-connected. So there's a significant veteran population, active-duty military folks who are going to school here, and then a very large population as well of dependents. The students that we tend to serve, many of them are single, some of them are married with young families. Um, they have served for six or eight years. They've gotten out. They're trying to figure out what it is they're going to be doing next. Um, they know that education can be a part of that, and education, the, the benefits that they get with the GI Bill and so forth can actually help them figure out certain things in the transition. Um, so some of them know exactly what they want to do. Uh, some of them don't have an idea, um, but they know that education can be part of that journey for them. Uh, the military demographic is such that I think right now there are about 30% of the folks in the military, uh, particularly on the enlisted side, are, are women, 70% men. And I think that there's probably a slightly higher percentage of the women veterans who, who choose to go to school than the men. So uh, we're maybe seeing 35 40% uh, of the veteran population going to school being women. Ethnically, it is a blend of exactly what we're seeing in our society. Um, and I mean all different types of diversity. So, you know, there are, there are veterans who are from the GLBTQ community, um, uh, men and women of color, uh, Hispanic, Asian, Filipino, African-American. Um, so it's, it's really a very wide landscape of students. What are some of the barriers that veterans who are not officers face coming back into civilian culture and community college? For many of our veterans, I don't believe it's back 
into civilian culture. They're coming into civilian culture for the first time as an adult. Most of them go into the military right out of high school. So they, they're in a situation where they're leaving home. They go into the military. They get, um, you know, they go through this, this very intense initial training uh, boot camp, indoctrination into their service. Um, it is instilled in them that they are now a member of that particular service. So they become a sailor or a Marine or an airman or a, a, sol you know, a soldier. Um, yeah. And then they get out. And for many of them, they don't know what they are anymore. They know they're not that active duty service member. They don't right away pick up the mantle veteran. Um, and they're trying to figure out who and what they are. And if I can, I'd like to share an anecdote. I'll try and make it short with regards to a student veteran that I talked with years ago. He was doing study abroad and he called me from Germany and he told me that he was having a really good time over there. I automatically assumed and told him that it must, the language must be going well. And he told me he was actually struggling with the language more than he had expected, which then prompted the question of, well, why are you enjoying it then if you're having trouble mm -hmm. communicating there? And he said he was enjoying it because he was a foreigner. He says, I'm, it's okay to feel like a foreigner here because I am one. I shouldn't feel like a foreigner at home. And when you are in a foreign country, what makes you feel like you're not at home is that the language is different, the dress is different, the social customs and norms are different, the food is different, the sights and smells are different. And when you get out of the military, all of those things are true. And you have this sense that you're not at home and this is part of what creates a dissonance in the mind of so many veterans is that they're at home in some ways and feeling like they're not at home in others. So what do you do at Tidewater Community College? What does the college do that is supportive of this 30% of the class that is veteran status? What we try to do is to be available to that student to help them through that transition and finding what they need to succeed here. Sometimes it's just a matter of, of, of helping them with some, some more basic life issues that sometimes the transition their uh, challenge they're facing is not so much in the classroom uh, as much as it is adjusting to uh, the cultural transition uh, more in a social setting. Sometimes it's um, not understanding how the college works and needing to be connected with the right people to help them solve their problems. We connect them sometimes with resources in the community if that's what they need. And one of the hardest things about all of this is that the military services, all of them to one degree or another, have a way of inculcating this value that asking for help is a sign of weakness. And we are trying to undo that and get folks to understand that um, Asking for help is one of those things that uh, you need to learn how to do, and you need to have a certain confidence that asking for help is okay. But you know, even in the civilian population, there's a whole swath of people who know how to navigate the college experience and all the financial stuff, and then there are millions of people who don't get it at all, right? <laughs> Without a doubt, that is true. It's not a reflection of who we have coming into the service. We have really intelligent, bright, industrious young men and women who, who many of our young folks in high school don't meet the qualifications for coming into the service. But we do have a very large population of them who are first-generation college students. And what that means is they did not necessarily grow up in an environment where um, college was valued or college experience was modeled for them. And because of that, when they get out, they have this really good benefit, but they don't necessarily know how to take advantage of it in the most efficient way. And uh, that is definitely something we enjoy sitting down and talking with students about. What do you think Tidewater Community College is doing really well with veterans? And where would you like to be doing more if you could? I think one of the areas that we're doing very well is that we recognize the importance of the military 
connected population, not only here at our college, but in the community that surrounds us. Um, about a third of Hampton Roads is somehow or another connected to the military, maybe even more when you look at some of the other defense industries. So we recognize that this is an important population to our college. It's an important population regionally to our workforce and to, um, and to a qualified workforce to work in the companies that are here. Where can we be doing better? The transition out of the military is so individual in its challenges that we can always do better at connecting with the eaches. You know, each individual has their own story. Each individual is going through their own challenges. And so while I can spend time presenting some broad brush generalities about the veterans, the truth of the matter is that does not describe all of them. One of my favorite quotes I got when I was, uh, I was working at, um, in the Veterans Center at Arizona State University right after I retired, became good friends with the director uh, for the Arizona Department of Veteran Services. And I heard her say on a number of occasions, when you've met one veteran, you've met one veteran. Right. Well, Steve Borden, thank you for sharing your insights on With Good Reason. Thank you very much for asking me to, uh, to be a part of this. And thank you for what you're doing. Steve Borden is director of the Center for Military and Veterans Education at Tidewater Community College. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monica Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Aviva Custo is our intern. Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance. For the podcast or to comment, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>